Father, as we have sung, we now confess in prayer the reason for our gathering this day to exalt, to honor, to glorify, to partake in the means of grace that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, has provided and the worship He so deserves. Because our sin was paid for by His shed blood, we, the redeemed, now gather. Lord, as we have heard last week, proclaimed how the early church responded to the proclamation of the gospel, wherein they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. They gathered regularly for the breaking of bread and for the prayers and for the fellowship of the saints. I pray that we, Lord, motivated by the same active, Lord, reality in our life, the Holy Spirit and His indwelling upon regeneration of our souls and the renewing of our mind through the proclamation and the hearing of Scripture, and, Lord, the ongoing work of sanctification in the hearts of each one that we would gather for the same reasons and this day that you might be glorified and your church equipped as you are honored and magnified, Lord, as we devote ourselves to the teaching of your word, as we break bread together, even at your table, recognizing these elements and what they proclaim to us, that Jesus' blood was shed and his body broken for the remission of our sins. And as we have the opportunity to joyfully share the testimony of faithfulness of our great God with one another, those who gather in your name, may your church be built up and strengthened for the cause and call of proclaiming Christ as Lord to the world around us. May you be honored and proclaimed through your people this day, this service, and this sermon. And if any of this happens, you get all the glory. We are broken vessels unworthy of the name. We are caught and dead in our trespasses and sins until that transforming work of the gospel changes our hearts. For all who gather in your name and have experienced your regeneration, for this we are thankful. And now let us add to our faith understanding as we open your holy scriptures. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Well, what a gift and privilege it is to open the scriptures together and to continue our worship service now with the attention of our souls drawn to the glory of Jesus Christ proclaimed in his holy word. So in that spirit, I pray that you will, with reverence, turn with me to Jude 2 verses 24 and 25. As those who are regular attendees know, our first Sunday of the month is our Communion Sunday. And we've been studying the book of Jude on, uh, through, this series, through our communion series of late. And today we get to the climax the, and the crescendo, if you will, of verses 24 and 25, which are a doxology, which is a sweet and condensed, you could say, or compact and powerful statement of glorious worship to the Lord who so deserves it. That's what a doxology is. It's a brief and powerful worship statement, often closing or providing the seal, the capstone, the summary, the mark of crescendo for a work or a, a service uh, that is intended to glorify the Lord. And so Jude closes his book this way. The aim of my sermon this morning is to worship the Lord in, proclaim, in proclamation and exposition of Jude's great closing hymn or doxology. And the title of this morning's message is Last Words, what Jude signs off his epistle with. With that introduction and your hearts and reverence for the hearing of the Word of God, would you stand as you're able and listen as the Scriptures, the inherent, infallible, and immutable Scripture, the Word of God, is proclaimed in your hearing today. This is Jude 24 and 25. The Word says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's hear it, church. Can you respond amen as well? Amen. You may be seated. This is the word of God. For many, and for, with good reason, I'm sure these verses rank fairly high among the memorable and memorizable passages, if you will, of the Bible. What a glorious summary of the worship that our Savior so deserves. There's a unique aspect of the Bible at times where just in a few brief sentences, so much of theology and beauty, poetry, and you name it, is packed into a small package. Today is a great example of this phenomenon in the Word of God. So my goal this morning is to unpack, if you will, 
to uh, reveal a few of what is, or some of what is contained in this doxology with reference again to Jude's greater work as well as the rest of the scriptures as he proclaims to us in this glorious worshipful form his last words to equip the church to stand in a day when her faith was challenged. Let, remind, let me remind you of an event that occurred here at a, in our church some years ago. And I'm always reminded of this when I read these words, but it made such a deep impression on me, and I trust I will never forget it. There is a piece of paper that is clasped in the hands of one of our own who has passed away, who has gone to be with the Lord in glory, Stanley Clark. His widow, my Aunt Susan, is here with us today, of course. Clasped in his hands is a piece of paper when he was buried. And I had the great honor and privilege of participating in that service, and I know some of you were there as well. When he was buried several years ago, that piece of paper was clasped in his dead hands, soon to be alive, at that final trumpet when he would be raised to join his ever-living spirit, receiving the eternal life that is promised in Jesus Christ. If you were to unfold that piece of paper and read it, this is what it would say. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That's right. He holds in his hands this great closing doxology of Jude. My Uncle Stanley's decision to be buried with this verse precisely illustrates the intent of Jude's closing words to the body of Christ. That is to say, the only abiding assurances, as other confessions of the church historically say, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism comes to mind. Research that on your own time. The only abiding assurances in life and in death are those rooted in the gospel that is authored and finished by the Almighty. Those who die without these words written as it were through confession of their sin, repentance, and faith upon their heart will never know the joy of Christ and His glory, majesty, and dominion, and authority in a way where they praise Him forever, eternally. Quite the opposite is the case. Instead, as objects of the wrath of God, the winnowing fork of death, and God's sovereign purposes as we move from this state of human being, if you will, or state of being as a human, into the next. Ultimately, what separates those who are in heaven and those in hell who suffer under the wrath of God is our confession of faith that because Jesus is glorious, majestic, and He has dominion and authority even over our sin and has paid for it in the grave, now we, for all time and forever, will worship Him for saving us. This is the ultimate assurance. The glory, majesty, and dominion, and authority of our only God and Savior are a surpassing reality unto heaven through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Him alone do we have the forgiveness of our sins and the promise of eternity for all time and now and forever. Meditations like these inspired Jude to close his letter in a worshipful doxology that will be remembered and sung by the church of Jesus Christ until he returns. It's been 2,000 years, and we, his church, a small collection here, the Assembly of the Beloved, treasure these words and indeed sing them, even as today we hear them proclaimed in sermon form. I've explored an outline, or ventured an outline, for a couple messages from this passage and I framed it around Jude's inspirations for worship. There are perhaps three I might focus on. The first is the fullness of salvation. Move Jude to pen these words. It's clear from the context. Secondly, the nature of God, especially as it pertains to salvation. What is true of God that is evident in his work of redemption on Calvary and everything connected to it. And thirdly, attributions or the attributes of God, attributions worthy of him. Aspects of his character revealed to us like glory, majesty, dominion, and authority also indeed inspired Jude. So let us open this close of this, or a couple messages to close this book with this heading. Jude models true worship inspired by the following. 
today, if we get to it, the fullness of salvation, and secondly, the nature of God as it pertains to our salvation. Jude models true worship inspired by the fullness of salvation. I have a subheading, and don't worry, this message is very simple. Here's the subheading, all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority be to him who keeps us from stumbling, two, to him who presents us blameless, three, to him who is our great joy, four, to the only God, five, to our Savior through Jesus Christ, and finally, to Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the structure of this doxology, and each one of these phrases deserves our consideration, do they not? All glory, majesty, dominion, and authority be to him who keeps us from stumbling. The fullness of our salvation assures us that in Christ, after we are born again, the promise of Jesus is true. I will be with you, or God himself will, in the third person of the Trinity. Though Jesus has ascended to receive his reward and glory, in that great and colossal event, cosmic in its implications, before the right hand of the Father, receiving the title deed and control and sovereignty over all the nations of the earth, reducing his enemies to his footstool, and saving all the elect for as many years as God has ordained this eschaton to continue. In, meanwhile, at the exact same time, if you will, the Holy Spirit descended. Just like he descended in, upon Jesus in the form of the dove, he was evident on the early church in the form of fire, signaling that a new era had arisen. The Holy Spirit would indwell the church, and the fullness of salvation would come with this promise. The abiding presence of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, would keep us from stumbling. Praise His holy name. I think beholding this, remembering this, not forgetting this, not taking this for granted, letting these realities uh, shape our thoughts, our gratefulness, our expressions of praise, are indeed a means and an aspect that that Holy Spirit uses to, in fact, keep us from stumbling, from drifting, from growing weary and well-doing, from backsliding, from entertaining the cares of life, and refusing or neglecting to weed back the thorns that might otherwise choke the seed. Jude's closing letter with this doxology reminds us that if we return and hold our souls accountable to this frame of mind, we, be, we will be diligent through these means to pull those weeds when they're yet small, and to yank out the roots of the thorns of what might otherwise distract and choke out fruitfulness for the kingdom. And remember that through these means, God is able, through his Holy Spirit, abiding with us to keep us from stumbling. All glory, majesty, dominion, and authority be to the one who is able to keep you from stumbling. Remember, in the context of our passage here, particularly the book of Jude, there were stumbling blocks, if you will, that the church uh, was facing. Judas said in verse 4, Ungodly people pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. These were the certain ones, false teachers in many cases, that he's identified who have crept in unnoticed. For long ago, they were designated for this condemnation. If we were to entertain the, their ideas, or if the church then were to follow these men, these individuals, they would indeed stumble. But Jude closes his epistle by providing this reassurance, especially relevant in the case of his readers who are facing heresies. God is powerful enough to give you the discernment and the wisdom to reject false teaching. They are facing heresies that betrayed an underlying motive of what? A number of things, and we've studied them. Ungodliness, discontent, boasting, favoritism, scoffing, and ungodly passions, just to name a few. These would cause the church to stumble or teachings motivated or shaped or inspired by a will to those ends would be, would undo the church and threaten to destroy her or remove her influence or really blunt, if you will, the effect of the gospel's sharp two-edged sword weapon of the word of God going forth unto the great harvest. But him who is able to keep us from stumbling the ones who pay attention and remember, beloved, as Jude tells us, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ will be able to discern and to identify and to reject what would otherwise cause us to stumble. This reminds me of Gene's sermon last week. 
Do you remember the effect? Or what, you know, what now, you might ask. 3,000 people at the end of, toward the end of Acts chapter 2, they confess their sin, they cry out, what must I do to be saved in so many words? They're cut to the heart. The conviction of the gospel, proclaiming them guilty for the crucifixion of their Lord and Messiah, has touched them deep in their soul. The Holy Spirit causes them to cry out in anguish of their guilt and seek for a Savior. And they accept Jesus Christ. And 3,000 are baptized on that day and added to the church. What next? What next? As Jean proclaimed to us from Acts chapter 2, I believe 47 and following, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They did the same thing Jude commands his hearers to do here. Remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, they sat regularly under the authoritative preaching and proclamation, exposition of the Word of God. Insofar as it is rightly handled from this pulpit, this is what we are doing. This is what Jude has directed us to do. Why? Well, in part, to keep us from stumbling. And then what else? Of course, the prayers of the saints as they gathered together, the fellowship and the breaking of bread. In the scriptures, the context of the breaking of bread includes the Lord's table. You know, we tend to separate those two things. We have like a fellowship meal. We have, you know, the Lord's table in communion. But I love the way we do it in our church because I think they're kind of melding together. And that's probably a better vision of what true fellowship really is among the redeemed. That is to say, because Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed, that is the foundation and essence of our fellowship and love between the beloved. That is what gives us our identity as the family of God. And so when we come to the Lord's table and partake with all our brothers and sisters in Christ in this shared covenant meal, and we continue in that same spirit, on, like we did last week or on a pot Providence Sunday, as we affectionately call it, what are we doing? We're building up our souls in the most holy faith. We're embracing the means of grace that God supplies. We're following the directions of the apostles and their cohorts like Jude, who spoke to us of old. Pay attention to these things. Why? Because in the fullness of salvation, the Holy Spirit will use these things to keep us from stumbling. We look at the scriptures, we assess our tendency to be distracted by any number of things, and we find in the context of the book of Jude, when we take these two things together, as if our own hearts aren't fickle enough, the church must contend in every age with additional forces of the enemy, seeking to undermine the testimony and the fruit of Jesus' ministry. Yet the same Savior, whose blood is sufficient to atone for our sins, will with his rod and staff, if you will, as the good shepherd, keep his elect from the wolves. And the good shepherd that he is, as we've studied him to be in Psalm 119, 176, and we compared that recently to uh, Psalm 23, will guide us even through the valley of the shadow of death and will keep us by these means from stumbling. Just a reminder and to build on prior messages as well, what are some of these things that we identify metaphorically as his rod and his staff? Well, they are his promises. They are his testimonies, his statutes, his laws, his ways, and those precepts that we have considered at such great length in Psalm 119. They are the diligent assembly of the saints to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. They are the confession and repentance of sins and obedience of the faith and trusting that God will give us conviction to walk in a manner worthy of the call. And as we embrace these, these means, if you will, these tools, these instruments, as we submit, as it were, another metaphor to the rod and the staff of Jesus Christ, then we will find Jude's words and prayer for us coming true. He who is able to keep us from stumbling is guarding us against the rapacious wolves of false teaching and the corruption of our own souls. If the devil would ha have his say, way, would cause us eventually to drift so far from Christ, we would prove ourselves to be apostate, never to have known him in the first place, as we grumble in our discontent and indulge our sinful desires. And we end up in the end with loud mouths both seen, showing favoritism to gain advantage and so forth, and loving the garments stained by the flesh instead of hating them according to the instruction of the Word of God. Jude models true worship inspired by the fullness of salvation, not only to save, but also to keep. The fullness of salvation uh, to, is, uh, is increase in our minds, or the uh, fullness of salvation, a greater appreciation for it, will occur to us when we recognize that Jesus is powerful to keep us from stumbling. Secondly, all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority be to him 
who presents us blameless before the presence of his glory. I'll read that passage again. That is Jude 24. But while I'm reading that in a moment, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Because we will have a greater appreciation and we won't, we're less likely to take these words for granted as we consider them in the context of what we've been calling the big picture. In the last couple messages, I, we, I, re, I referenced, I kind of uh, made a point or application for some of you young people that your uh, study for the younger kids takes the big picture of the Word of God into view. And that's a helpful reference point, not only for you, but also for all us adults. And that is to say that and applying this idea to our text today, when we consider the big picture of our sin as separation from the Lord and the great miracle that is required to present us blameless for the, before the presence of his glory with great joy, our heart of worship in singing the doxology of Jude will be that much more full and sincere. Jude says, 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And of course he goes on to say he's deserving of our attribution of glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. How big of a deal is it that the Lord is able and does through Christ present us blameless before his presence? Oh, it's a big deal indeed. The cause for separation of the human being from his creator and from his father and from the one who breathed life into him in the first place is recorded for us the human condition, all the way back in Genesis 3. You remember, 24, he, the sovereign God, the authoritative judge, the one who will not indulge any corruption in his presence, but because of his holiness, drives out anything that is sinful or wicked from him. Indeed, he drove out the man at the east of Eden, of the Garden of Eden. He placed what? Kids, the door of Eden was guarded. What was it guarded by? Do you guys remember? Adam and Eve could not go back to Eden because what was guarding the door? Someone shout it out. Anybody know? Did I hear angels? And there was a sword? Flaming sword and angels. Very good. So these cherubim and this flaming sword turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what are cherubim, biblically speaking? They are special beings created by God, particular to one purpose, to guard the presence of the holy from any corrupting influence, any sin, any wickedness. So when soon as man fell, the instant that man disobeyed the Lord, his heart became dirty and corrupt and unsuitable for the presence of the Lord. And there was no way to return. In fact, the presence of the holy God was guarded forever. And no compromise, no loopholes, no end run, no alternate gate, no tunneling underneath by a sword that turned every direction preventing us from entering into the presence of the holy on account of our blamelessness. You better believe Adam and Eve felt the weight of this condemnation when they left the garden. Man and his deception and his, you know, sin that he indulges and his self-righteousness tends to forget what a serious situation we find ourselves in. Everyone that is corrupted by the blood, spiritual blood poisoning of Adam and Eve is born with this sin stain that prevents us from entering into the presence of God. Only those who are blameless, like the cherubim who've never sinned, like Jesus Christ, the perfect righteous one, like the angels who never fell, only those who are perfectly presentable are able to dwell in the presence of Almighty God, not us. What has to change in order for us to stand in his presence? Jude tells us with the testimony of redemption, that big picture story of scripture, only if we are blameless. What can make us blameless again? What can remove that stain of sin? As we often sing, there's one thing, one cleansing agent in all the universe that can present us blameless and holy in the presence of God, and that is the blood of Jesus, which is pictured in here at the table of the Lord this morning. That is the only thing that can restore us. And as I'm often fond of saying, it was through the sword, if you will, the flaming sword that struck the side of Jesus Christ, that that judgment prerequisite for re-entry was absorbed in his side. Because Jesus was killed for us, we can have access through him, through his body, as the book of Hebrews tells us, into the holy places, past the cherubim who guard it. Why? Because we are blameless, justified, declared righteous, cleansed of our sin by the power 
of his blood. It's a big deal. Turn with me to Exodus 29 as you're able. As the law begins to unfold, as a great teacher of the condition of the human heart and the holy nature of God, there are many symbolic representations over and over again. There are ceremonies, there are sacrifices, there are feasts, there are symbols that declare truths like what we are considering today to the people so that they would not soon forget. And it's easy for us to forget. So it's a good reminder to go back and read passages like Exodus 29. Listen to verse 1. There's a purpose statement for all that God will require. These protocols and, po and policies for entering into the presence, the tabernacle presence, by the priesthood. It says verse 1, Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Who knows what consecrate means? It means to be made blameless, to be washed clean from sin, to be made holy, to be cleansed. So there was a whole ceremony that pictured the necessity of consecration or cleansing before the priesthood, that would be Aaron and his sons and the Levites and so forth, this, these officials that God had anointed to represent the people and to dare to enter his presence. What did this consecration look like? Well, it symbolically is pictured in the rest of the chapter. I'll just read a little. Now one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, you are to take those. The unleavened bread, the unleavened cakes mixed with oil, the unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour, put one in the basket, bring them in the basket, bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. You shall take their garments and put on Aaron the coat, the robe of the ephod, ephod the breastpiece, and you should gird him with a skillfully woven band of the ephod. And as we continue to read, much more language like this piles up. A carefully ordered prerequisites, necessary conditions to enter the presence of God. Pictured here, you must have clean clothing. You must be draped in royal robes. You must be cleansed kind of ritually or symbolically of, on your physical body to enter into the presence of God. An animal must be slaughtered. Picturing that the sins of the priests who themselves were sinners must be atoned for before they can enter in and so forth, and these offerings and everything. What did, it, what did this teach us? Well, we continue to read, and as the chapter closes, the Lord says, upon these conditions, so to speak, or in so many words, 43, there I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So it's clear as the chapter closes that all of these careful preparations are meant to impress upon the people that there is necessary atonement, necessary cleansing, and there is necessary things that must be in place in order for anyone to dare step foot into the presence of Almighty God. This table, I've mentioned this before too, and this is something to keep in mind. We always say the table is open and welcome for those who confess their sins and they should come freely and joyfully and partake if their heart is in the right place and if they've repented and turned to Jesus Christ. But I will sometimes say this, for those who have not, as it were, imagine this, standing in front of this table, two cherubim with flaming sword guarding your way, and you better not touch these elements. See, here we have a tangible picture for us that yet abides today of much of what was pictured in the Old Testament. And what do these means intend to communicate? Entering into the presence of God is a big deal. And you better be blameless. And the only way that you can be assured of the washing away of your sins is that a lamb be slaughtered to atone for you before you dare to step into the presence of God. Otherwise, better you step away from that mountain as far as possible. Because when the voice of the Lord sounds above Sinai with the blast of deafening trumpets and a firestorm of His glory strikes lightning, you better believe anything that is unconsecrated that even dares to touch the mountain of the presence of God will be instantly incinerated in a moment and sent to hell for their great sin, their presumptuousness of stepping into the holy and the awesome power of a righteous God without the assurance of atonement for sin. Hebrews goes on to draw a contrast between this mountain representing the judgments of God and a mountain 
that instead is a festal gathering with the angels and the saints who've gone before who rejoice and honor him in that place because their sins have been atoned for. But there are no shortcuts. There are no substitutes. There is no, this, this is what the false teachers wanted people to think in Jew, that there was another way to that mountain. And they'd figured it out. There's another pathway to knowledge that will assure for them, you know, safety in the, in the future, in the next life, and so forth. Nope, there is only one way. If the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, has not been slaughtered on your behalf to atone for your sin, do not approach his presence. But if he has, then you come boldly and joyfully and reverently with that overflowing heart of worship. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. What if we get this wrong? Well, I won't touch on this verse directly, but in Leviticus, is it chapter 10? Let me check my notes. Maybe different. Yes, Leviticus 10. There it records, there is the record of Aaron's sons who did not follow these prescriptions that we read in Exodus uh, 29. But they had a better idea. They knew and proved whatever notions. And they presumed upon their own wisdom to offer what is sometimes translated strange fire before the Lord. What happened to them? It was horrible. The judgments of God came down and the fear of the Lord struck the people as he brought consequences for this great sin of presuming to enter into the presence of God by some other means of man-designed atonement. There is only one way, one truth, and one life, and it's Jesus Christ crucified for us. And when Jude tells us, remember the teachings of the apostles, and let that inform your discernment when you see teachings otherwise, seeking to improve, quote-unquote, on the timeless, once-for-all faith delivered to the saints, beware. Leviticus 10 type of judgment awaits those who deny our holy God. I found it necessary, Jude says, to write to appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once, that is to say, there is not another savior or another authority to, you know, abrogate the old. Oh, Jesus Christ is and will forever be, and his proclamation and the closed canon of his word interpreted and applied through his anointed agents recording his truth for us, the once and for all standard of truth. He is the word of God made flesh and has recorded his word by this means. This is the once and for all, that is, for all that God has ordained to save, this will be the same means when they will come in and they will be rendered as upon their repentance and Christ's work saving them saints, that is, those who have been consecrated. But we must contend for the faith, recognize the counterfeits, and stand. And as we have learned, there, and thereby keep ourselves from stumbling, as it were, the Lord through these means, and to gloriously remember that God has presented, through Jesus Christ, us blameless before him in his presence with great joy. When we take this into account, that is the big picture, the high stakes, and the precious sacrifice, and the only way of salvation that, is, that can possibly present us blameless in the presence of his glory, then our heart will swell with worship and we will be availing ourselves of the same motives and the same inspiration that Jude had when he penned these words in the first place. Jude models that true worship inspired by the fullness of salvation, recognizing that all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority is deserving of him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to him through Jesus Christ who presents us blameless before the presence of his glory. And he does this, point number three, with great joy. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. All glory be to the one or be to him who is our great joy. We uh, sing songs along these lines and I was reminded of one and just, you know, uh, took a little screenshot of my phone of some lyrics. This is Be Thou May Vision. I'm sure you're familiar when we sing the song, we sing among the rest of the verses, this one in particular, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, put first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. O God, be my everything, be my delight. Be Jesus, my glory, my soul's satisfied. What is the joy 
that Jude writes about here and the Bible expounds in other places. And let me touch upon it in the heart of that hymn and let me venture a further definition. Biblical joy, true redeemed joy, is our soul satisfied upon realizing the fullness of our inheritance in Christ. The satisfaction of our souls. So not just happiness, but satisfied. Relief that our sins are atoned for. The promise of eternal glory. The confidence that God will protect us from wolves and enemies along the way. All of this, our souls satisfied upon realizing the fullness of our inheritance in Christ. Our God is able to present us blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. You know, when we remind ourselves of these things from His Holy Word, as the Spirit uses the proclamation of the Scriptures, it has this effect when we're bowing before the Word of God. What are we doing? We're, laying our, we're confessing our anxieties and we're reminded of the truth. If we're tempted to grow a fearful uh, to, and to a paralyzing degree of the false authorities, the principalities and powers, and the, the, those of the wicked who seem to rule our day, we return to a psalm like Psalm chapter 2 and we find that he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds these rebels in derision. And though they seek to throw off the chains of the Messiah's holy word, they will prove themselves foolish when they are dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel to the one who has a two-edged sword in his mouth and an iron rod of judgment in his hand. And who is that? Our risen and ascended Jesus Christ. And now, to our soul's satisfaction, we remember that when we march as to war to the kingdom of God, we do so behind the one who defeated death itself, Satan and his minions, and our sin. And our souls are satisfied as we gain confidence that no enemy formed against us will prosper if we trust the conquering authority, majesty, dominion, and glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It is a powerful reality when we hold our souls accountable to the great joy, our soul's satisfaction that is available in the reminder of the gospel, its fullness, and its implications for us. We are here in the meantime between salvation and glory. And during this time, it's important to recognize, our discernment will be sharpened when we realize this as well, that individual sin, which Jude deals with by way of secondary application, and primarily false teaching, which he attacks directly, they are a bid for our soul's attention. They are a bid for our soul's attention. Individual sin and popular teachings, they promise joy, more accessible joy more immediate joy. That is, your soul will be satisfied probably more by this than by that. And will we follow these words, or will we realize with faith that though the call of the Christian is to take up our cross and to follow the Lord, and this by definition is not easy, and will be attended by persecution and suffering, will we join the soul-satisfied disciples who cried out in worship, at the great privilege of suffering for the name of Jesus Christ after freshly been beaten by the authorities of their day, calling them out for their rebellion and wickedness? We will if we let our souls steep in the reality of Jude 24 and 25. When we remember what a big deal it is that he has Christ alone presented us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, then we will be better able and equipped to stand. Our soul will be satisfied and realize the fullness of the inheritance of Christ. And the temptation toward discouragement and despair by the consequences and by the difficulties and the persecution and the mockery that sometimes attends our way will have less effect on us. It will encourage us rather than dispirit us. It will be counterintuitive to those around us. The more pressure they put on the church, the more boldness she has to proclaim the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The old tricks and tools of the enemies don't work anymore. Why? Because they availed themselves of the superior weapons of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Recognizing that Jesus Christ is our conquering hero. And that he will lead us through any challenges and any difficulties between now and then. He is our great joy. Discipline of endurance and cross-bearing. That is following the Lord, his will for us between now and glory. Discipline of endurance and cross-bearing is an exercise of faith that the greatness of joy 
you will ultimately experience in Christ is way better and worth the difficult in between, whatever that may be, than any short-term promises that individual sin or false teaching may hold out for us. To remember, the God who parted the Red Sea, He was powerful enough to lead the people through the pro- to the promised land, even if it required 40 years of wandering. But which required more faith, crossing the Red Sea or that 40 years where you are fueled only by your memory of the promises of God and His, of course, abiding presence? It's not like they were left without reasons to be encouraged. But because of the time and the difficulty that was required, they, their soul's satisfaction was tried by these circumstances. But if they would remember that Red Sea moment that they were taught never to forget, and even in those early Passover meals, which are fulfilled in Christ we participate in today, they were to tell the next generation, remember, the one who's called you to endure can, by the word of his power, recreate or recapitulate a creation event, divide the waters from the sea and create a pathway of dry land across this body of water so that a 400-year slave people can escape the greatest army of the earth at the time. And then that same element of nature that God spoke into being in the first place and divided from the land at the Red Sea will collapse as an instrument of his judgment on his enemies. That same God is calling you through the wilderness. And so let the satisfaction of your soul be reminded of his power to save. Every time at the Lord's table, we revisit in the symbolic nature of this meal, our Red Sea moment, when the seas were parted and we were delivered from our sin through Jesus Christ. When he was broken, bruised, and battered, and killed, and abused, and rejected of men, and crucified, and humiliated in our place. The Red Sea, as it were, the instrument of God's judgment, did not drown us. But through our ark, Jesus Christ, much like a baptism event pictures, either in Noah or at the Red Sea, we were carried through the waters of judgment unscathed. And at the Lord's table, we remember this. And what is the intent? That we remember him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before his presence, uh, uh, the presence of his glory with great joy. And thus, we can be reminded in hymns like Be Thou My Vision and more importantly, scriptures like this and the broader teaching of scripture that God is our everything and when he is our delight and when Jesus is our glory, our soul is satisfied and the superior joy of faith in Christ is strong enough to carry us through and keep us from stumbling in between now and glory. A God who parts the Red Sea will lead his people unto the promised land, a land, as we've studied of late, flowing with milk and honey, pictures, metaphors of abundance. Likewise, God who took on flesh to die and rise again for sinners will usher us unto mansion-lined streets of gold, shaded by the tree of life, overlooking the crystal sea, glistening in the reflection of the unveiled glory of God. That is what we have to look forward to. Mansion-lined streets of gold, shaded by the tree of life, overlooking the crystal sea, glistening with the unveiled glory of God. I can't explain to you all that those pictures entail. They are symbolic in part of something so amazing, ineffable, that we have to see it and behold it and experience it to appreciate all its majesty. But that, saint, in this room, if you've confessed and believed in Jesus Christ, is the fullness of your gospel inheritance held out for those. So let the fullness of your soul's satisfaction be reminded of the promises of the gospel in the heaven and he, earth, he moved to present you blameless. And the riches of the inheritance in Christ promised to you if you submit to him and follow him, even if, it cre- if, even if your way is attended by trial, difficulty, persecution, and wilderness. The early church faced these kinds of things in the days of Jude. And you can put yourself there and imagine if you got together, you know, walked a long distance for a little get-together with some of the early apostles, how pitiful their situation must have seemed. We have no way to communicate with the churches of Asia Minor right now. Paul is planning on a missionary journey. I think he may have left a few weeks ago. We're waiting on word from so-and-so, Timothy or Titus, to tell us of his journey. 
rumors are his ship has capsized in the you know, great Mediterranean Sea. And if he's shipwrecked, the gospel might stop here and go no further. You can imagine planning sessions, the early missionary journeys. Do we have anybody that can leave the work here in Judea or Samaria and head east to bring the gospel to lands yet unreached? Well, perhaps the apostle Thomas can spare the time, but he's suffering from this or that. You know, I just think about it. No internet, no postal service, no cars. You know, they had good roads, but he had to walk on them. And, you know, who knows what you'd encounter along the way. Yet the gospel went forward under these conditions, fueled by the undiluted glory of God in the proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord, filling the hearts with the soul satisfaction to endure despite any obstacle that stood in the way of those who counted it a great joy and privilege to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. We need this kind of fuel for our own souls. It's sort of embarrassing to look at the things we suffer in light of the greater, you know, endurance our forebears and heroes in the faith have sometimes endured. But in the end, God tailors his trials for each soul and God has purpose in them. The Bible teaches us this. And also, it's encouraging to know that if God can cause someone to be sawn in two for the glory of God and not recant their faith, i.e. the book of Hebrews chapter 12, and knowing full well he's powerful enough to raise a person from the dead, well, then that same spirit of Christ that dwelled in them dwells in us, and therefore we can endure. We can endure during a time where we live in, which probably is more characterized by the enemy seeking to distract us by all the indulging appeal of sin, distractions, and whatever, you know, that is advertised to us and all these different outlets to amuse ourselves to spiritual death. You know, but God can keep us during this time and keep our souls and our joy fixed on Him, and teach us through abiding in His Word and holding our soul accountable to hate even the garments stained by the flesh. Perhaps I'm debating whether how much to get into point number two. Let me just give you a brief uh, cursory introduction to the next point. We'll pick that up, Lord willing, in our next series. Jude models true worship inspired by the fullness of salvation. Just review what we've covered thus far, all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority be to him who keeps us from stumbling. Be to him who presents us blameless. Be to him who is our great joy. And finally, or fourthly, be to him the only God, our Savior through Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord. As we continue to move through this doxology, we find that Jude finds an inspiration for his worship from the nature of God, especially as it pertains to salvation. How to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Then 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then he goes on, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Who is this only God? Well, as we touch upon the greater portion of Jude we find in verses 5 and 6 some context for Jude's closing. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own, only, within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Who is the only God? The only God is the one who reserves the right and will ultimately always execute judgment upon anyone who challenges his authority. Upon anyone, past, present, or future, who takes, begs to differ and takes issue with his glory, his majesty, his dominion and authority. Whether it be a wicked city, self-deluded, indulging their sin, emboldened by their neighbor's own wickedness to erect this new hedonistic tower of Babel, flying in the face of blasphemy to Almighty God, whether it be the Tower of Babel or any other city itself or the, all the population centers of our land who are more likely to organize themselves, around pagan, God-hating rebellion than they are the sovereignty and lordship of Jesus Christ, or whether it be angels themselves. The only God is the one 
who can part the seas and lead his people out of Egypt. He is sovereign over nature. The only God is the one who commanded that angels worship him, and when those who disobeyed uh, exercise in their will to rebel this, this wickedness against the Lord, they did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. In other words, Jude illustrates by these examples that Jesus is Lord over a powerful society, he is Lord over the heavens, and he is Lord over creation. That is the only God. The only God, that is the one who is truly sovereign. And anyone who has challenged his authority has been and will be met from now, forever, and all time with a reckoning, with a day of accounting. This is what the judgment seat of Almighty God is. The nature of God pertaining to redemption, first of all, recognizing that God has all authority. Yet in spite of this, we have a personal relationship with this only God. Jesus Christ is our Savior, possessive and personal. And Jesus Christ is our Lord. More on this in the future, but in the meantime, consider these things. Go back and meditate, if you will, on Jude 24 and 25, in the context of both what he has written in the fullness of his epistle, as well as the fullness of the Word of God. And as you do some of these cross-references and take the fullness of the Scripture's teaching in view, I trust that you will find your soul's satisfaction increasing, and that you will be motivated all the more, inspired to worship, to join again next Sunday as we gather in the name of Jesus Christ to proclaim all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority be to Him who is able to keep us from stumbling, to Him who presents us blameless before his pres the presence of His glory, to Him who is our great joy, to Him who is the only God, to our Savior through Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us transition in prayer. O oh Lord, we thank you for the reminder of our soul, of your glory revealed in Scripture. We pray that you would take the words that have been so amazingly written down for our blessing and benefit from the pages, from the abstract, and write them on the table of our hearts and translate them into action in our lives. May we be those who are, Lord, known for our love, commitment, faithfulness, our dedication, our worship, and our joy, because we take seriously and not for granted, reminded each communion Sunday, and whenever we open your scriptures and meet as saints that are redeemed by the Almighty, that this blamelessness is purchased at the cost of the death of our Savior by grace alone, standing in our place condemned, taking our sin upon his shoulders, that by his stripes we are healed of the wickedness that forever otherwise separated us from the presence of a holy God. This morning, as we're reminded of this through your word proclaimed and your word featured, dramatized, so to speak, in this meal, I pray that you would just strengthen our resolve in light of these things and may our worship be all the more pleasing to you and may it result in fruit to the growth of the kingdom of God and the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.